Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. Well, we are in the midst of a message series entitled Letters from Heaven. If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been taking a look at beginning in Revelation chapter 2. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, um, in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus Christ actually speaks these seven letters into a, the life of a man by the name of John. And John actually writes these down, which would later become a part of the book of Revelation. And um, over, the, over the course of time, individuals in churches have asked the question about this book, uh, are, is are these words directed to specific geographical churches or are they uh, directed necessarily to churches today? And the answer to that is yes. Um, yes, both geographical churches of the day, but also uh, they are letters that are, are meant uh, to be warnings or encouragements to the current church today. Um, individuals have also said, well, it's, it's meant toward the church, so really not necessarily for me individually, but then the answer to that is no, it is individual too because we always say that the church is not a building. Uh, the church are the people. And uh, as Jesus speaks to John and John writes these things down, they are also warnings to all of us, whether you're a, a parent, a husband, a wife, a student who's about to embark on a very, very important journey. Uh, Jesus has some specific warnings for all of us as we approach this. And uh, there's two words that we're going to center on. There's, if you wanted to sum the message up into two words, um, I won't give that to you right now. But there are two words that we're going to hang our hat on as we unpack this chapter beginning in chapter 3. But before we do, in order to set this up, uh, speaking of these two words, which you'll get, uh, it was, I remember moving here to Myrtle Beach about three years ago. And my wife and I, we had a condo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And in that condo, we had hurricane windows. And so it was a bunker. It was third floor. Um, there, there wasn't anybody getting in or getting out. It, it was just very safe, very secure. And so at nighttime, you didn't hear a lick. You didn't hear anything outside. So we slept very comfortably. And then all of a sudden we moved to Myrtle Beach. We, we purchased our house. And with a house, you have a lot more windows and you have a lot more noises. And so I remember when we first got here in the middle of the night, I heard a noise. And I remember all of a sudden going, Jennifer, wake up. One thing to know about my wife, I'm going to out her right here. She could sleep through a, a truck, dump truck flying through a nitroglycerin factory. She does not wake up at all. And so I said, Jennifer, wake up, wake up. She didn't wake up. So I, so I decided to be the man of the house. I thought, you know what? I hear the noise. If it is someone, I mean, with my physical physique, I could probably take it with my hands. But just in case, I decided that I would go and, and next to the bed, believe it or not, we have wasp spray. Yes, wasp spray. In fact, police will actually encourage you that if you don't have weapons or anything else like that, wasp spray can do a quick job. So if you work for Target today and you see some of our people purchasing, I want a cut of that. But anyway, continuing on, I, I grab the, the wasp spray and I, I remember walking gingerly through the house. I remember going down the stairs and I mean, I am scared to death and I, I've got this and I'm hearing noises and all of a sudden I heard another loud noise again. I turn. At that same time, Jennifer is up in bed. She hears it too, finally, and she wakes up. And this is what she does. She goes, Terry, wake up. Terry, wake up. She doesn't see any movement, doesn't hear anything. It's pitch black. So she says, oh, that guy could sleep through anything. So she gets up. On her side of the bed, she, there's a bat. So she grabs the bat, and she walks out of our bedroom, down the stairs, I'm downstairs. I hear someone in the house. So I've got my wasp spray. 
And so I am scared to death, and I am walking and walking and walking, and all of a sudden she comes down, and I go, ha! And she goes, ah! Now, I didn't spray her with the wasp spray. That would have been really bad. And she didn't hit me with the bat. That would have been even worse. But I remember she looked at me, and she goes, what are you doing? And I go, what are you doing? And she looks at me, true story. She says, well, I told you to wake up, but you didn't wake up. I'm like, I'm right here. I was down here first. And we laughed. But the truth of it is, she just finally looked at me and she goes, well, if you would just wake up. And I'm like, I did. I did wake up. But that was the joke. But here's the truth. In the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 3, Jesus is going to center the beginning of this letter on two words. Wake up. And it's designed to a church by the name of Sardis. And Jesus is a very strong word for this church. So we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your iPads or iPhones, you can download the YouVersion Bible app. And all the notes that are associated with today's message are there for you as well, if you'd like to have those. So you can also download that as well. Here we go. Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. Let me pause there and let me take you back. Those of you that were with us in week one, remember we said, what is the angel of the church? The angel of the church in definition was the leader of the church, the pastor of the church. It was a letter designed to go to the pastor, the shepherd, the flock leader, to be able to be an encouragement or a warning to that leader. He continues on and said, this is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Again, back to the first letter. Who is that individual? That individual is known as Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus said. And if you remember from letters of the past, those of you that are new, Jesus would always open the letter with an encouragement and then he would have a complaint. So let's see what his encouragement is right here. He says this, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation of being alive. Now, I got to be honest, when I read that, I started chuckling. Because how bad of a church do you have to be that when Jesus looks for something positive to say, he says, you're alive. But actually, he doesn't say you're alive, does he? His one word of encouragement is actually that says this, you once were known as being alive. It's really, really important that you understand that Jesus has a very, very stern warning for this church. Can't find anything positive to say, but says this, at once upon a time, you were a great church, but now you're no longer alive. Instead, he says this, you are dead. Jesus begins this letter to the church in Sardis. Let me give you a little background on Sardis. Sardis was known as a military city. It was raised up on a plateau. And the church in Sardis was a phenomenal, incredible, amazing church at one point. And what makes an incredible church? An incredible church has a mission. That mission is to reach teach and love others with the love of Jesus Christ, letting them know about his great love so that they too will be inspired to want to know the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And they were an incredible church at one point, but all of a sudden they lost their mission. They lost their way. In fact, if you look through history, it says this, that the culture of the time began to follow a different religion. The church lost its influence. The community began to follow a different religion headed up by someone known as Artemis. Artemis was known as the god of rebirth. Now, for the Christians in the room, not the kind of rebirth that we know. 
In fact, this religion was known as reincarnation. That once you live and you die, you come back and you live again on the earth. And so the church at Sardis, which was influencing individual to an incredible relationship with Christ, somehow, some way, lost its influence, started dying, and Jesus says, you're all but dead. And the people in this city now are following a different mantra, so to speak. And Jesus is going to have a stern warning for those individuals. Take a look at what he says in verse 2. He says this, wake up! Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Jesus looks at the church and says, wake up. I find that all that you're doing do not meet the requirements of my Father. What are the requirements of my Father? What is told in Scripture. You've lost your way, church. You've lost your mission, church. Wake up, church. Now, here's the scary thing. is the church was still functioning. The church thought it was alive. Even though everyone else looked and thought, no, they're dead, including Jesus. Let me illustrate this another way. Because here's the truth. In a church of our size, in the last two services and this service, Statistics, I'm not looking at each individual, but I will tell you, statistics would say that in this church there are many Christians. If you're not a Christian, just sit and pay attention and watch, because this is true, unfortunately, in a lot of churches. That church is made up of many people who are like-minded and believe in Jesus Christ. However, many of them are sitting in the pews, and if Jesus were to come here and speak into the heart of all of us and say this, are you on mission Are you paying attention to the most important things? Are you doing what I've called you to do as a church, as an individual, as a student? Are you focused? The truth statistically in our church, in this service alone, would tell you that some of you think you're alive, but you're really dead. And you're on the decline. And Jesus today has a warning in Revelations 3 to look at you as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, and say, wake up. You're sleeping. You're dead. And if you're not careful, there will be consequences. And we'll get to those in a little bit. Let me illustrate this another way. I shared this about three years ago in our church, and I couldn't think of a better illustration to share with you. In the mid-18th century, in England and Scotland, a plague struck. And at that time, hundreds, if not thousands, of people were dying because of this plague. Bodies were lining up in the streets. There was a health hazard going on in both of these countries. And the leaders of these countries said, we have to do something about this. And so they made a decision as a government to say, we're going to go ahead and we're going to dig up the coffins of those that have died in the past that are of of a certain year old, and we're going to begin to put the new bodies into the old coffins and to use the old graves for new graves because we have no other place to be able to put these bodies. And if we don't do something, disease is going to spread and we're all going to be in trouble. So they began systematically digging up graves in England and Scotland and something horrific happened. As they began to open some of the coffins to remove the old remains, when they opened the top of the coffin, they would look at the top of the coffin and they would see scratch marks. They would see dents from the inside, which could only mean one thing. And when that individual was thought to be dead, they were actually alive. In fact, books were written about this. 
And at that time, they reported 700 cases where an individual had been buried alive. Panic struck England and Scotland. People began to to really, really get scared about when they would die. So many individuals would write in their wills to their family that you are not to bury me for at least a day, that you are to stand vigil over my body, making sure that I'm actually dead, making sure that I don't wake up. Many of you even do this today. Many of you have done this recently, probably, if you've had a funeral in your family. You go to a funeral home. The coffin lid is lifted and raised. You come and pay your last respects, but it was never designed to pay your last respects. It was always designed for you to go check to make sure that the person had actually died. They call those wakes. Why? Because they wanted to make sure the person never woke up. And so even today, we participate in wakes. It goes even further. That wasn't enough. As they started to bury individuals in the coffins, they decided that they were going to be sure that someone had actually died. So they began to tie strings. They tied a string around wrists, a string around ankles inside the coffin. The string would come out of the coffin through the ground, and there would be a bell contraption that would be sitting at the edge of the graves. And individuals during the day, family members would actually come right after a person was buried in the hopes that they would hear the bell because the bell meant life. And they would immediately dig and dig and dig and open the coffin to save the individual because modern medicine would be mistaken sometimes. And an individual who was thought to be dead could actually be alive. When an individual grave was open and an individual was alive and they were able to carry them out, they would begin to tell others they were saved by the bell, which is where we get that phrase even today. But there was still another problem. In cemeteries, at daytime, it was really easy for the family to gather and to be able to make sure that the bell rang. However, at nighttime, individuals during this mid-century, 18th and 19th century, they were superstitious. They didn't like cemeteries. Who liked to go into a cemetery at night? They thought there were ghosts. They thought there were bad things happening. So nobody wanted to go and to listen for the bells at night in the cemeteries in the middle of the night. So churches came together and solved this problem. They thought if we can hire someone to be able to work at night, to listen at the cemetery just in case the bell rang, we would then employ them, pay them for working what we call the graveyard shift, which is why we call that even today. Individuals then all around the country were making sure that they were saved by the bell that they had someone working the graveyard shift. In fact, did you know that even in our country, one of our founding fathers, George Washington, even wrote into his will to have a five-day wake to make sure that he was not buried alive. You see, there were a lot of times where people were actually alive, but people mistaken them for being dead. And Jesus was speaking directly to that church because that's what happened in the church. In fact, I would venture to say there are some of you sitting here today who'd say, Terry, my marriage is alive and well. But Jesus is speaking into your heart today and saying, be careful, it's dead. So for those of you who would say, you know what? In my marriage, in my life, in my spiritual life, am I alive or am I dead? 
If Jesus were to speak to me, and if I were to be really honest, would I be found alive? For those of you who have honest hearts and say, you know what, Terry, I'm not sure. I might be struggling. Here's what Jesus has to say to those of you that might be dead. Take a look at this. He says, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Jesus basically says to the church at Sardis, go back to what you first believed. Go back to where you were when you first were excited and you had my mission and you understood what it meant to have a relationship with me, a day-to-day relationship, where you were excited about what I was telling you, excited about spending time with me, excited about doing the things that I called you to do. Go back and then watch this. He says, hold firmly. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. I remember a couple that came in for counseling one time. Someone had recommended them. This was years ago. And in my office, there was a love seat in my office. And when this couple walked in, as soon as they got into my office, they came over to sit on a love seat, which, by the way, is designed to keep couples close together. That's why they call it a love seat. I've got five of them in my house. They're great. But anyway, so they walked in to the office. And when they sat on the love seat, they sat as far apart as you could imagine. I mean, literally, the guy was almost on the edge of the love seat. And I knew this couple is dead. And right away I said, what's the problem? And they said, this is our last hope. We're pretty much done. And they began to unpack issue after issue after issue after issue after issue. And so finally at the end of all the issues, I looked at them and I said, why are you here? And they said, we don't want to give up. There's something in us that hopes that we can rekindle and we could save our marriage. So I remember looking at them and I remember saying this. I said, there is always hope because the Christ who lives within you can do all things. And so I said, if you're committed, if you're committed to going back to your first days and begin to unpack these things, I'm not saying I know what's going to happen, but I promise you that there will be hope. And they said, tell, tell us what to do. So here's what I encourage them to do. I asked them this question. When was the last time you prayed together? And they both chuckled. They said, I don't know if we ever prayed together. I mean, maybe as a couple, maybe as we dated, you know, I was trying to impress her, but I don't remember ever since then. And I remember looking at them and saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and at nighttime, I want you to go ahead and do a little devotional that I gave them, which is one page long. And then at the end, right before you go to bed, not seven days a week, if you could do seven, great. But three or four nights a week, I just want you to sit together and I want you to pray. And I looked at him, I said, you don't have to pray a pastor's prayer. You can just close your eyes and talk to God. But just pray together. Just spend some time praying together. And I'll tell you what, do that first. Go back and start here. There's so many other things we've got to get to, but I want you to start there. And I want you to come back. They were going out of town. I was like, come back in a month and we will see how you're doing and we'll talk about what next to do. One month went by and they didn't show up. So I thought, well, they're dead. No, I'm just kidding. So I looked at them and two weeks later, they finally made an appointment and they showed up in my office. The first thing that I noticed when they came into my office, they walked right up to the love seat and guess where they sat? Close together. And they turned and they were smiling. And I looked at them and I said, I said, tell me what's going on. They said, we still have issues. But they said, 
we began to talk. Those devotions began to open us up a little bit. And then we began to pray. Now, we haven't been perfect, but we began to pray. Don't miss this point. That couple stopped and paused, put down their pride, and they went back to when they first believed in their marriage. And they took one small step. And because they took one small step and they held firmly, hope was found. Hope was found in their life. For some of you today, maybe that's Christ's call to you, to take one small step to see if you'll wake up. There's a man by the name of Dr. Vance Havner. Dr. Vance Havner uh, is known throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. He has spoken at the Southern Baptist Convention. He's spoken in our denomination several times. And he had a famous quote for churches. And it all has to do with our hearts as individuals. He said this, you want to know how a church is dying? I'll tell you, they've lost their mission. And this should be the mission of the church. It says this, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for the saints. The church is a hospital for the sinners, which basically means this. It means that the church should be a place that opens up, that when an individual who is sick, and by the way, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I'm not calling you out. I'm not telling you you're sick in a negative way. Bottom line is we know as Christians, apart from Christ is death. Life with Christ is life. That at the end of this life, we'll spend eternity with him. And so if you have Christ, you have life. If you don't, you're sick because you are leading yourself to death. And so the church should be a place where when you walk in, individuals gather around you, encourage you, support you, and tell you about a relationship with Jesus Christ. If the church becomes a museum for the saints, where individuals walk around and they put on an act that they're perfect or have their life together, and when someone struggles, they look down on them and they judge them, then you are becoming to be a museum. And guess what you find in museums? A bunch of lifeless relics of the past and you find monuments I can tell you this no church is perfect I can tell you that every church struggles but I can promise you one thing here in our church that if you're a leader in our church and you see an individual judge someone else because they don't look like you talk like you act like you think like you then your job and responsibility is to call that behavior out and tell them that's not who we are that we are a hospital for sinners And we are here to love, encourage, and support and welcome them in. And shame on me or shame on any leader in our church if we see that behavior and we don't stand up to it and call it out for what it is. Because if we don't, we will be like the church in Sardis where we think we're alive, but we're really dead. Dr. Vance Havner says this, there are four stages of ministries and churches will go through. The first is man. Man will go through a vision. Individuals in our church will say, you know what? We need to meet this need. We need to start this ministry. We see a need. We need to meet a need. And they'll be inspired by God to do the things of God, which will then trigger a movement where people of God will gather together and do some incredible things like in Managua, Nicaragua, where we all of a sudden have the opportunity to make change in a school of 300 kids and make a difference and see lives changed. That's healthy, that's exciting, that's a movement. But there's danger when a movement happens. Because all of a sudden, the danger comes when 
everyone gets on the same page and everyone starts doing the same thing. And you don't even have to talk to anybody because everybody knows this is what we do. This is who we are. And they know when to show up and they know what to do. You all of a sudden can become a machine where the ministry, the church is running on its own. Now, many of you are sitting there saying, well, Terry, that's not us. Let me ask you a question. This morning, why did you come to church? If I were to ask you to name for me why you came today, what would your answer be? If you sat there and you struggled to find a reason why you came to church, be careful. That's the danger of a machine. Well, I always go to church. Anytime the doors are open, I'm in church. I can tell you that you can go to church 52 Sundays in a year and still be dead. It's when we forget why we do what we do that can cause you to become what Dr. Vance Hagner says this, you can become a monument. And a monument is dead, lifeless. There might be a great past, but it's not moving anymore. So be careful, church. And Jesus says, wake up. But here's the great news that he says in verse 4 about those that are willing to go back, those that are willing to hold firm, those that are willing to make a change and begin moving forward again. Take a look at this. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. If you don't know history, you miss this. But Jesus used these words on purpose in Sardis because Sardis was a community that manufactured woolen garments. And he said this specifically because they would know wool and they would know cloth. And he said, there are some of you that have not gotten your cloth dirty. There are some of you that continue to hold firm, to continue to do the right thing. And for those of you, hold firm. Because you will walk with me. You will do what I've called you to do. In other words, if you just take one small step, you can make a difference. I want you to write this down. The smallest detail can lead to the greatest result. For some of you that say, Terry, I think I'm dead. How do I fix it? Take one small step. You don't need to become perfect. You don't need to become Mother Teresa. You just need to go back to your first belief and say, I'm going to take one step Hold firm. Put my pride down so I can be a better husband, a better parent in my household. And Jesus closes by saying this. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I'm done. Listen to this. Wake up. One last thing. Jesus says, anyone with ears to hear, I'm calling. There are many of you that are spiritually dead right now, just statistically speaking. And Jesus is calling out to you and is saying to you, wake up, change, take a step, hold firm. If you have ears to hear, listen to what I'm saying. It's as if, Jesus is ringing the bell. But no one's listening. I close with this. 
churches during the mid-18th and 19th century, they began to look at the bell as a symbol of life because the bell meant life during that time. And so all of a sudden in churches all around towns in England and Scotland, when they would build the church, they began building bell towers on churches. And when the bell would ring, it would call all the people of the town to life, to the life of Christ, a movement that doesn't stop. Are you listening? And do you hear the bell ring? Let's pray. Father, right now, I just, um, I ask for you to speak into the hearts of every student, every parent, every adult in this room. And God, there are many in this room that love you and think that they are doing so much good. But God, the church of Sardis was a church that was remembered to be an alive church. So God, I pray for the individuals in this room, God, that you call out the spiritually dead and that you'd remind them that they are yours. I pray today for every husband, for every wife. I pray that you'd remember to return to what you first believe, to take a step and allow him to hold on to you and walk with you. For our church, may we never forget our mission. May every day we look to encourage, support, and love those that need you. God, most importantly, may we be salt and light in this community to where when they look at our church, they don't see a church with a great history. They see a church with a bright future. So in this moment, as Tangina sings, Father, speak to your people. Speak to me. Remind us that there is hope because we are yours in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.